you know, when they start, they're like this proto mod ska band. And I think as some of them didn't know how to play instruments when they started. So ska is a good place to start if you don't really know how to play music. That's how I got started. I didn't know what I was doing. We love this music and we know what we are talking about. We've got opinions and we're not afraid to say them out loud. We already know if this is ska. Because this is Horn Pod. Horn Pod. Horn Pod. Welcome to Horn Pod, a ska podcast. I'm JJ Loy, and I'm joined by a man who is down on his luck. He's out on the streets. He's Matt Wixon, whatever the Mustard Pug lyrics are. <laughs> I'm Matt Wixon. He's Matt Wixon. Yeah, I wasn't prepared to jump into your, uh, your, your uh, what do you call it? Your prompt, your setup. I'm sorry. So Matt, uh, I you know we're we're always uh, trying to get to know each other a, a little bit better on the on the show. I mean, I wouldn't say that, but go ahead. <laughs> Not trying to get to know me. <laughs> um, I, I'd say one of the things that maybe people have picked up on, but but maybe isn't like uh, totally obvious, is that we are of of radically different generations. I'm. I'm from 1979. I'm technically the last Gen Xer. Damn. And I'm I'm 1983. Yeah, that puts you like really fully in millennial status, doesn't it? <laughs> what are we talking about? Um, I'm more of a He-Man guy. You're more of a Rugrats guy, right? Son of a bitch. What was the price of gas when you were? I don't. What are we doing? I'm just trying to, just trying to do a little chit chat here. Oh, um, whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know where I'm at tonight. It's all right. We have a special guest on this episode, JJ. Who's that? Who's our special guest tonight? He is a musician. He is a podcaster. He is the author of the brand new book, Ska Boom, Something American. Oh, no. I should have had the t- <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. Our special guest is... An author. Uh, oh, he's a podcaster. He's a musician. He's the author of the brand new book, Skaboom. And I'm... Still don't have it, do you? <laughs> I think it's fun. I think it's fun to have a silly intro. Whatever. Yeah. Because we have this, this, this stuffy fucking, with the patches on his <laughs> elbows, professor. Yes. Yes. We have to bring some fun into it so they'll sit they'll sit through the lecture. I love that you don't know how to, the name of my book. Please keep that. <laughs> <laughs> JJ, you can cut this into an amazing episode. Yes, Matt. Like you say, he is a musician playing with Bigger Thomas, Heavens B, and Rude Boy George. He is a ska blogger running Marco on the bass for years and extra years. He is a ska podcaster by way of Ska Boom, an audio companion piece to his new book. And he is the author of the brand new book, Ska Boom, an American ska and reggae oral history. Kids, it's Mark Wasserman. Oh, that's what I meant to say. Mark. Hello. Welcome. Hi, Mark. Hey, JJ. So this this has been a long time coming. I feel like uh, this was inevitable. 
Yeah, I knew I knew right off the bat, even before you had started your your whole podcast, that like you were definitely like on the list of people I wanted to have on eventually. Thank you, because I am a big fan of yours, a combined the two of you as an entity. Oh gosh, um, I like you both separately as well. But um, <laughs> your uh, your podcast is one that I enjoy very much, and one that I use to measure my own. So um, if you, I don't know if either of you like sports. But I have, I'm a big sports fan, and um, I tip my hat to you, you know, like Chicago Bulls versus New York Knicks kind of respect oh, nice. um, <laughs> with your podcast, because I, I listen to it. I'm like, I got to up my game. These guys are, are, are bringing it. Um, and so uh, I love that. I love that, um, you know, it's, it is uh, not competition and not rivalry, but more like, okay, you know, I want to stay at the same level that, that these guys are. So thank you for, for making me raise my game oh, on man. a fairly regular basis. Thank day. you so much. And, and to like kind of in a, in a reciprocal way, I'll tell you straight up that I can't listen to most other Scott podcasts. Like I don't, I don't fuck around with those, but like, I am like, I am digging deep into uh, your, your latest podcast. I'm, and we're going to get into that too. But uh, yeah, dude, like seriously, like you're killing it right now. Thank you. Um, what are you yeah, trying I, to say about other Scott podcasts though? Um, <laughs> I don't want them to poison my own well, I guess, I should Ooh, say. Okay. You know what I mean? Do you listen to all of them? Do you get around? Look, I, I'm sure this is part of a larger discussion about the Sky universe. There's a lot out there. Some yeah. of it's great. Some of it's good. <laughs> some of it's not so good. And so you have to sort of wade through it. But I hear what you're saying. I hear what yeah. you're saying. Um, and even even more than some of it's good, some of it's not so good. Some of it's for you and some of it's just not for you also. I like that. And that's that's something like I, I kind of have to repeat to myself sometimes like, OK, like I don't really like those music podcasts like that are playing music. And there's a lot that are focused on like ska punk stuff, which I like ska punk, but like not a lot of the stuff that they're covering. And so if I hear something, I'm like, hey, I don't like this podcast. You know what? It's not for me. I bet somebody else likes that. That's fine. No, I, I hear you on that. I have to agree. And, and again, no disrespect to anybody who takes the time to create something and put it exactly. out there. But, but I will say, Matt, that I agree with you. I don't need to listen to a bunch of songs that I can probably stream myself. Now, if you have an opinion on those songs and you want to share that opinion or you have some narrative tied to those, then I'm there. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to that. But just sort of sure. a radio show as a podcast, okay. You know, probably not. I don't have time really in in my busy life for, for that right now. But again, and honestly, somebody is probably in the market for that to listen to something like that, and would never want to listen to yes, Porn Pod or your show. That are bummed when they like, when they hear us, <laughs> right? They'd be like, "Who yeah. is this old dude going on about the '80s, man? No, Why are they just you. talking? What are they?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's one of the things I really like about your show is the uh, the brevity. Like, uh, you you're not just uh, filling time. Like, you you'll you'll get in and like right out too. Like, yeah, you know, I had I don't know about you guys. I had sort of like a, a couple thoughts about that. I mean, when I do an interview with somebody, I let it sort of run its course in terms right. of the the natural discussion. Um, and I'm sure, like you, I I do. Uh, do my homework and spend some time thinking through what I want to ask somebody. But for these other ones that are more like historical, yeah, it's it's really meant to um, to give you the top line, almost like uh, the 101. And if you're yeah. interested in it, there's a lot out there that you can you can learn on your own. Or you know, it's really a 
an appetizer, a moose bouche, if you will, mm. for uh, the book. <laughs> so if you if there's something there that I put up that you like, then chances are they'll, it'll be in much more detail in the book somewhere. Right. And let me just say also, you uh, you sent us both JJ and I advanced copies of your book which was so cool yeah i i never i've never had a, a promo copy of a book before and that made me feel really special also though the the book is fantastic and i'm really happy that we i mean like i said this was inevitable you were going to be on this show one way or another but i'm glad that i love your book also when you're on i'm glad show. you love it too because <laughs> i mean <laughs> it's it's taking a be honest you know when you work on any project and 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 you know matt i know you're a musician as well Whenever you put your heart and soul into something, whether it's music, art, uh, writing, and you are with it yourself for a really long time, I was with this book uh, for three and a half years, and the only other person who was looking at it was my editor, mm -hmm. um, you really don't know what what people will think of it. So uh, it, it is weird to, to, to put my heart and soul into something like this for so long. And then put it's it's a little scary, you know, in, in a weird way. And, you know, you you don't want people to say, man, that really fucking sucked. Or there's so many, you know, your mm -hmm. editor did a shitty job. Like it's you missed a whole bunch of, of stuff. You know, the punctuation's terrible. You know, the kind of stuff where you dream mm -hmm. about, you know, you get up in the morning and, and you're naked um, when you, you go to work. But but thank you. I really appreciate that because um, I see you guys as like um, important influencers and um, I wanted to to share it with you, so that um, I, you know I trust your your take on it. You you are part of the American ska intelligentsia, so to speak. Oh, dude. So, um, I, I'm <laughs> you know I'm I'm interested to hear what you think. Well, well, honestly, like I I, I have to say, like almost any time I pick up a ska anything, there's kind of uh, an obligatory like whether it be a documentary or uh, just something on the internet like a video or or a book. There, there is kind of just like the ska story that has to be covered first. You There's know? always the par that paragraph, right? <laughs> and I, I didn't catch it in your book, and and I have to say, Ooh. like when Matt and I started this podcast, we talked about how we got we have certain blind spots, and your book is like all of my blind spots, like all yeah. all of this stuff that like it really isn't part of like the the handed down story that we've heard again and again. And um, I don't know. I just found it very eye-opening and and really. Yeah, the stories that you collected for this book, like you can't, until this book was written, you couldn't just find this stuff. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's, and I would judge you, like I was really excited for this book because this was a huge era of ska music and in my own country, nonetheless, that like I really didn't know a whole lot about. And right, not really... just my blind spot, but I feel like it's a blind spot in the in the the, the overall like culture wide. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. I I think that's why when I had this idea initially and I I pitched it to the uh, lovely people at DeWolf Publishing, um, they were like, "Yeah, no one's ever done this, so you need you need to do it and you need to do it now, because yeah. um, if you don't do it, at some point somebody else will." So. Yeah, I agree with you. It is strange that I think a lot of fans of ska music, particularly American ska music, sort of think it started in the 90s. And um, I understand that. Um, you know, there's this phrase, you know, the history is written by the winners. And a lot of the bands in my book were not winners. They just weren't, unfortunately. Even though right. some of them are still chugging along, they um, didn't have social media. 
and um, they weren't able to present themselves to a larger audience in a, in a much more uh, direct way that, that people can now. And um, a lot of them, there's a couple stories in there about major label um, flirtations or, or um, signings, and, and they all unfortunately ended very badly. So, right. um, you know, they missed out. And, and I, 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 I sound like the old man yelling at clouds here when I say, you know, I'll say this over and over again, like there was no internet. So um, these bands only live in people's memories who saw them, and um, they don't share those memories <laughs> a lot. So, um, you right. know, I felt a lot of pressure to, um, to try and collect these stories so that, they're, that they exist. And hopefully, to your point, to recalibrate the starting point for the music, the, the, the subculture that started that's, that's, you know, thriving amazingly to this day. How many people did you talk to overall? Oh my God, I sort of lost count. Um, I want to say it's somewhere between 200 and 250 to 300, something like that. Yeah, I cannot even imagine how much work this was. I mean, was this, was a lot of it in person or were you like writing back and forth so that you had kind of the transcript already? And how were you handling that? So part? yeah, it, it was, um, so I was a newspaper reporter very early after I got out of college. And it was okay. very reminiscent of that. I worked for a local newspaper in New Brunswick, New Jersey, the home news, which no longer exists. But I learned uh, sort of the basics of how to be a reporter when I was there. And so a lot of those skills carried over into this. So it was, it was like musical detective work. Each chapter is sort of um, separate. It's standalone to the story of the band. So there's there's 19 chapters. 18 of them are about bands. One of them is about a big tour, the Ska Boogie tour of 1993. And so I approached each like a, a mini book. It was really finding the main person in each band and then like a detective sort of expanding from there and saying, can you um, connect me with this person or this person or this person? But yeah, it was grunt work. And um, it was yeah. mostly um, phone interviews and okay. then transcribing those those interviews, which one thing I did do was to um, set aside some money to pay for those. Otherwise, it would have taken me like six years to do this. So right. I submitted the recordings to a transcription service and then they would send them back to me. And that's, you know, where your bottleneck is. Like, right. let's sidestep that all together, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, the DeWolf people uh, put out an amazing oral history about City Gardens, which was a punk rock club I spent a lot of time at in the yeah. 80s in Trenton, New Jersey. And they told me, look, if you can afford to transcribe these, you will save so much time. It took them eight years to pull that book together because they did all the transcription Ugh. themselves. And I just, I didn't see myself doing that. I think I would have, it, this wouldn't have come to fruition because it was just so hard. That's so hard to do. I was just sharing with Matt recently a, um, a comic book that This American Life put out that kind of teaches you how to do radio the NPR way. And... I was always surprised to, to learn that um, they log everything right away on NPR. All the footage, they have some intern just sitting there writing it all down. Like a, a few key words to for each sentence so you can parse what was said and when. Exactly. Wow. And I'm just like, oh, well, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't intern at NPR, I guess. <laughs> Um, Maybe not. You know, and that that I, that's actually an interesting point because that somewhat speaks to why I I did an oral history, which is, you know, it's it's an impossible task sometimes. 
Why I chose that though is for a particular reason. I felt that it was important for these stories to be coming directly from the people who experienced them. I didn't want to filter this through my lens at all. Right. Now, obviously, I had something to do with the way that the narratives were woven together. And so mm -hmm. I guess I... You curated. Yes, I curated. Exactly. Nice, well, okay. Nice. So like, are these all bands that you were a fan of and now you get the chance to like finally write about them or are some of this like stuff that you kind of discovered as you did your detective work? Um, they were all bands that I was a fan of. So I wrote this blog for a long time called Marco on the Bass. And yeah. that's where a lot of the um, ideas for this germinated. I started exploring the world of, you know, 80s American, 70s American ska. And um, it was sort of like, I didn't know who the Box Boys were until 2008 when I started that blog. I had no idea. I'd never heard of them. It was just through spending hours and hours on YouTube and digging around online. Um, the On Club, which is a place that's become mythical for me, uh, I didn't know about. But it's so important to American ska because two key bands from Los Angeles who are sort of the grandparents of every other California ska band started there at this little shithole club in Silver yeah. Lake in LA. And so it was that kind of stuff. I, I just love stories. I mean, I, I'm JJ, it sounds like you're in, I don't know, are you guys into like comic books or, or, you know, things like that? Cause origin stories fascinate me regardless. Actually that's, that's always been my comic thing is like, what I'm most interested in is, is the secret origin, uh, stuff, you know? Yeah. I'm the same way, but, but as it relates to bands, because right. I find right. bands are fascinating to me on so many levels, the psychological levels, um, the emotional levels. Why do certain groups of people come together or drawn together? And what is it about that energy that they bring that they're able to create something that's, um, appealing to other people and moves other people. And so, um, you know, and I've been in a couple of bands myself and the origin stories of those bands have always fascinated me. You know, bands have always been surrogate families for me. And as I found, as I went through this process, they are surrogate families for many people. Um, those become your brothers yeah. and sisters. You know, you go through some pretty intense experiences that change you in good and bad ways. I mean, that's the, when people ask me like, what's the quick elevator pitch for this book i say it's the human condition set to a ska and reggae <laughs> soundtrack <laughs> see ska can blend with everything this it is, can this is what i'm saying <laughs> so so yeah in a sense this is these these are uh stories of like you said, kind of minor failures at times, but that all add up to this kind of like larger success of U.S. ska. Like, and you also kind of point out these are the grandfathers. Like, these aren't these these aren't bands that like for the most part got to tour and really got to like spread the word about about their local scene elsewhere. It's more like these are the bands that somebody saw and they were like, "Oh, I should start a ska band," and then those ska bands became like skank and pickle and and you know like the early third wave like guys am, am, I, am i am i characterizing this wrong you are no you're characterizing that 100 correctly um yeah i i i think there's a a couple of it's it, it's sort of biblical almost you know uh, <laughs> x begat y and that kind of yes. thing um yeah. you know i like to say there's no mighty mighty boss tones without bim scholar right? right um in 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 california 
There's no Operation Ivy slash Rancid without the Uptones. Um, there are a number of those. Uh, you know, there are. There's no um, No Doubt or Fishbone without the Untouchables. And so, you know, these are sort of like the Old Testament kind of um, <laughs> figures <laughs> who, uh, you know, most people are like more into reading the New Testament. Um, and forget that that without the Old Testament, uh, you don't have all those New Testament stories. Right. That's a good way to put it. I like yeah, that. Like Leviticus and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Leviticus. Yeah. <laughs> Was there anything that you learned throughout this where you were like, I don't think anybody knows this and it's very important? Yeah, uh, there's a couple of <laughs> things. Um, okay, I'm glad because that was a strong question. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, originally I wasn't sure how to organize the book. And ultimately I ended up doing it sort of in a chronological order. Some people might take, uh, you may question the way that I did that. But for me... It has to start with this band that I guarantee you literally no one has ever heard of called the Shakers. Yeah. And um I can I can attest I never heard of them. find their story fascinating like riveting um because there's a passion there and on the flip side there's sort of some hubris there as well um you know a, a bunch of uh white sort of rockers from san francisco oakland sort of get one guy in particular this guy ron rhodes sort of gets bitten by the reggae bug and that happened a lot in the 70s and, um, you know, a, a lot of people who I spoke to from that era, you know, they can point directly to seeing The Harder They Come, which uh, was a huge deal when it was released as a movie in right. the early 70s. And there's two, the first two bands in, in the book, The Shakers and Blue Rhythm Band, 100% motivated by seeing that movie, listening to that soundtrack, which was their gateway into Jamaican reggae. And both those bands, the members of those bands, turned their lives over to reggae. Like, these are all white uh, male musicians except for one member of the Shakers who's a woman. They 100% became reggae devotees. And in the case of the Blue Rhythm Band, went to Jamaica. Like, <laughs> like we're getting on a plane and we're going to go to Jamaica and just fucking walk around and see what we can learn. And um, right. And to me... That's like, I'm impressed and awed by that, but it's also kind of crazy. Like, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's like, you know, if you're a spiritual person and a hippie in the seventies and you just decide you're going to go to India, but, but Jamaica was there, India. And so to me, that was lear learning about that level of passion for something was well, I, I was awed by that. And that in, in both cases, they, devoted their lives more so the blue rhythm band but it was all about reggae music for, for both those groups um and how, you know, how they, was their devotion met in jamaica can you can you speak to that 
I, I can. Um, Blue Rhythm Band ultimately became the first American band invited to play Sunsplash, which is about the highest yeah. uh, respect that you can be given. And um, a lot of that had to do with the fact that the members of Blue Rhythm Band rolled with uh, members of the Soul Syndicate. When they got to Jamaica, they happened to go see the Soul Syndicate at a club in Kingston. And they were standing around and they, as musicians, they were very talented musicians, they were sort of checking out the gear. And the members of the Soul Syndicate sort of came up behind them and said basically like, what the fuck are you doing? And they said, oh my God, you're the members of the Soul Syndicate. And they sort of did like the Wayne and Garth thing, you know, they, they bowed right. down to them. We're not worthy. <laughs> right. And the Soul Syndicate was like, oh, you guys are cool. Okay, shut up. You're worthy. Why don't you just come roll with us? Come, We'll, we'll come pick you up tomorrow. And for like on and off for the next couple of years, they would go down and hang out with the members of the Soul Syndicate. And it was sort of a mentorship where they learned how to play reggae authentically. And I'm not saying that people here don't play reggae authentically, but they studied it at such a level, like a PhD level, about how to play the drums and how to play the bass. And um, to me, that's, that's impressive. And these were all uh, lifelong musicians, but but reggae was was what really moved them. Do you think that speaks to their skill, or do you that do you think that speaks to a certain attitude they brought? Because I know not everyone that goes down to Jamaica, uh, not not all not all white Americans go down to Jamaica with a love of reggae and are met with, um, you know. Well, JJ, let me let me <laughs> cut you off and stop you there have you heard the the blue rhythm bands alive in jamaica uh a live album recorded from their sunsplash no set. i haven't Tell me uh, it's not it's not on the streaming things but you can find the set on youtube and so you can hear how they're received by jamaicans and it's absolutely stunning how much the crowd loves them yeah we like to play some of these cock song style music that we so love They came on at dawn. So Oh, that's right. <laughs> everybody was asleep and tense or whatever. Right. And so everybody was asleep and they would have these uh they called them sun splash beds where basically um you'd have a, a bit of cardboard and you'd you'd you know cover yourself up with your coat and sleep on this cardboard in the field basically. And then as the sun was coming up, they put blue ribbon band on. So we're talking about like five, five thirty in the morning, and they just start playing. And they decided to do ska and rock steady. Huh. Um, and a mix, mostly songs that people would know. So from the golden era of Rocksteady and early 70s reggae, and people were just sort of woken up to this, and they look up and they see, they look like extras from The Grateful Dead in a lot of ways. Okay. And so I think people looked up and they were like, what the fuck is going on here? And you can tell, like, the, the crowd is just kind of, like, standing there, watching, like, not really sure what's going on. And then, like, at a cer at certain points, like, you can just hear them roaring over the band and shit. It's wild. And to Matt's point, like, they just stand up and the, they just are like, these guys are playing the songs our parents 
we heard at home, you know, when we were growing up here and they're killing it. Because right, this was like 1982, right? Yes, exactly. So yeah, they they did not look what you what you would expect, but they were um, really talented musicians. And they were from Kansas City, right? Kansas City, exactly. That's so cool that like right off the bat, the Midwest is like representing, you know? Yeah, one hundred percent. And I didn't know this, but Kansas City had um, a very active music scene, mostly jazz. And some of the best jazz musicians in America have come out of Kansas City, home of bebop. Yep, exactly. So these guys were all from that era where they were um, basically jazz musicians. Reggae was a new thing for them, so they really they really schooled themselves in it. So they're a band that, that if you're a fan of American ska and reggae, you have to listen to at some point. Well, that's right what we call across the pond uh from me here in st louis <laughs> do you did you did you pick up on anything on like night nighthawk records in your in your research i've always been kind of curious a little bit about about I that i didn't but you're the second person to mention that to me um i recently spoke to mitta goodwin but yeah that was like one of the one of the early reggae labels here in in the u.s and and was out of st louis and Oh wow! I didn't know that. What what can you tell me about that, man? I really I really have trouble piecing it all together. Mm-hmm. I hear I hear bits and pieces here and there. That's like one of those things that I'm t- talking about is that there's not like a narrative passed down to me like that far back. Like the, the, the there seems to be some kind of gap between the the 80s and 90s where like some stuff was handed down, but not like the the whole story. You know? Right. Exactly. I think that was pretty common in a lot of places. So one band that we haven't mentioned in this episode so far is Gangster Phone. Mario Mario in the past couple of months, I've seen you post in several places online that Gangster Phone is one of the like cornerstones of the American ska song. What I've always liked about Gangster Fun is they um, represent the city they're from in in ways that other bands don't necessarily do. Um, And uh, I had never visited Detroit until uh, a couple summers ago uh, when we did a little mini tour in my band, Lou Boy George. And and so uh, finally getting to see Detroit made me appreciate Gangster Fun in, in a a much deeper way. And Matt, you know, you please jump in here if I if I get anything wrong. Um, Honestly, you probably know more than I do. Um, I meant more about <laughs> like Detroit, the Detroit experience. Oh, Detroit? Okay, I can tell you about Detroit. I think what they shared with me was you have to have sort of a very dark sense of humor if you live in Detroit. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> Particularly in the 80s when my sense is, from what I've read, is the city was sort of battling for its own soul. All Detroit has a cancer. The cancer is crime. I mean, it was going through something that not a lot of American cities necessarily go through. Can you fly, Bobby? Um, yeah. with, with, with just a breakdown of, of society in a lot of neighborhoods in Detroit. Uh, uh, bitches leave. Uh. And so I... I also like that the that gangster fun sort of snubbed their nose at 
um, what quote unquote American ska music of the 80s was supposed to sound like. They sort of, um, you know, they looked to California and they looked to New York and they said, no, thank you to, to both of those scenes. Nice shooting, son. What's your name? Murphy. Their songs are, um, if you listen to them, they're like stories from another planet. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's no rude boy, skank it up, you know, um, any of that no. kind of traditional, what you would have expected. It is Even when they do, it's almost like a joke on it. Right, Fat right. Fat lady skank. Exactly. Yeah. And, and um, it's, it's an absurdist take on ska. I can tell you this. There was a time when people took ska in the 80s really seriously. You had to dress a certain way. You had to play the music a certain way. That's sort of where the schism between trad ska and ska punk started to happen. And um, I just love that they didn't want to be part of any of that. They did their own thing. They're almost like one of the members of the band, David Minnick, sort of said to me that he loved The Selector and he loved Devo. And he was trying to combine those two. And I sure, think he did yeah. a very good job. And the other thing that, that as I got older was more appealing to me about Gangster Fun was they had a we don't give a fuck attitude most of the time. Like... They were selling out St. Andrews. Now, I've never been to St. Andrews, Matt. I don't know if you have, but I, I think uh, it's a huge Many, place, many, many right? times. It's, it's huge. It's like a thousand camp. Okay. So they would say, and I think they were saying this honestly when I interviewed them, they'd say, oh, shit, there are a lot of people here tonight. Like, it didn't it did not matter to them one bit whether they played a, like, tell me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Matt, Hamtramck? Is that how you pronounce it? Hamtramck. Hamtramck. Yep. Or St. Andrews. It did not matter. They just wanted to drink a couple beers, get up on stage and play their songs. They were like the go-to band for like a lot. Like they they did at least a sh one show with Fugazi. That was like, like every, a bunch of people talk about a Fugazi show and then they all are like, it was Gangster Fun's show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's Fuck. interesting. Uh, that was in my book uh, and I probably shouldn't talk about this, but there was... Um, a little bit of strain between Gangster Fun and Ian MacKay. I think uh, I heard about this. Because of that show. <laughs> yeah. Because basically Gangster Fun, on a certain level, incited a riot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. I mean, there, people were tearing urinals off of the men's room in St. Andrews that night. This is going to be... JJ, you have to leave this story in for all of the Michigan Scott people that okay. listen. Uh, the first time I saw the Toasters, it was like, I think 2002 or 2003. They were playing at the shelter, which again is in the basement of St. Andrews Hall. And above them in the main room, Macy Gray was playing. And so at the Toaster show, there's, there's a couple opening ska bands. Uh, and then one of the dudes from the Toasters comes on stage um, and is like, hey, uh, because of the Macy Gray show, like we can't play until she's done with her set. She said, there can be no music down here. 
So everybody just kind of chilled and like hung out. We're kind of bummed, you know, sitting around in this shitty venue. And then eventually Macy Gray's set ends. The toasters come on. It's a great time. Uh, they they start the set with a chant of "Fuck Macy Gray," <laughs> which which has become a staple of of toasters shows since, in, at least in Michigan. Okay. Uh, where where uh, apropos of nothing, and most people don't even weren't you know nobody at the toaster show now was even there. But like it's it's now something we just do. Uh, but like later later on in the show. Macy Gray didn't have to walk through the shelter, but she did. Uh, she, like, there's, there's, there's two ways into the shelter. One is through St. Andrew's Hall, and one is, like, through an alleyway. She decides to just walk through with, like, a little posse, little entourage of people. The people are just booing the hell out of her, and she just doesn't even make eye contact with anybody and just leaves. I'm like, man, what a night I'm having. <laughs> So that's that's my St. Andrew's Hall story. <laughs> what a night I'm having. <laughs> Was she from Detroit? Because that sounds like a very Detroit thing to do. She is not, but that's a Detroit thing to do for sure. <laughs> Damn. All right, so Mark, let's put a cap on that real quick. Without Gangster Fun, you don't have... You don't have Mustard Plug. You don't have the Suicide Machines. Both huge fans. Um... Spoke to Dave, spoke to Jason. Uh, Jason speaks very passionately about uh, how seeing Gangster Fun changed his life. Um, he was really into hardcore and punk, and it sounds like the hardcore and punk scene in Detroit was dangerous, like, you know, like violent, you know, yeah. um, in, in a way that uh, was, was not something he wanted to continue doing. And so I think he lived in some squat somewhere in Detroit and... The people there said, hey, we're going to see this gangster fun. He's like, I don't know who that is, but I'm down. And he said it was like the most fun he'd had in a long time because it was still violent. Again, people ripping urinals off of walls. <laughs> but um, he said it was fun because it was diverse. The crowd was diverse. Um, it was metalheads. It was punk rockers. It was hardcore people. They were hippies, uh, black, white, Asian, Hispanic. He said he'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, I think that inspired him between hearing the specials and hearing Gangster Fun. I think that was sort of the genesis for the early start of the Suicide Machines. Same thing with Mustard Plug. Uh, not much going on up in Grand Rapids. Um, Dave, I think, sort of hears about a, a ska scene in Detroit, comes down to Detroit, sees the band in like a really scary neighborhood somewhere in Detroit, but is <laughs> mesmerized. And I think in, that inspired him and the guys in Mustard Plug to sort of mix ska into their punk and so you do get both those bands from michigan i think are leaders of the whole uh traditional ska punk i'd say but but directly related to to um influence of gangster fun i want to know what you mean by traditional ska punk because hmm. uh, that's an interesting term i would say that when i listen to the suicide machines i hear the influence of the specials significantly yeah. the bass player in particular plays faster versions of bass lines i could imagine horace panter playing yeah absolutely and i also think jason 
loves two-tone ska. And I hear, yeah, I hear that in, in the Suicide Machines, and I don't necessarily hear that as much in ska punk that came later. So I think, are you, are you talking then about, like, ska punk that is directly influenced by ska? Yes. Is that what you mean? I think so, yes. <laughs> in, in, because I, I love that term, honestly. Uh, like, it's a really interesting term because I think there is a difference between bands that are like a f- direct influence, you know, like a, a ska punk band that is directly influenced by ska versus a ska punk band that's influenced by ska punk bands. I, I ascribe to that. I mean, other people might disagree with us, but I, th- I think that, that that makes total sense to me. Yeah. That's why I listen to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever listened to, uh, or I guess it wasn't an audio thing, uh, Dave Hilliard wrote like uh, a bunch of kind of musings on the the early third wave. Yes, you, I've read that. Yes. You remember that? I remember it was originally posted, I think, on MySpace. Right. It was a MySpace blog. Yep. Yes. yes. I did read that. And he was, he was kind of making the point that that kind of early third wave, the kind of like predecessors that we're talking about kind of fizzled out because everyone kind of uh, moved to a funk bandwagon. Uh, when I mentioned the, the the Chili Peppers, that's when I started thinking about this. <laughs> that, yeah, that like the Chili Peppers kind of like created this like new um, direction that kind of sucked all the energy uh, from like, I guess, horn bands for lack of a, a better word. Did you encounter that? That, yes. that hypothesis at all? or I don't Yeah, know. no, I encountered that personally. Oh, yeah? <laughs> um, yeah, there were a lot of bands in the late 80s, early 90s who had as their mission to get signed. And I think a lot of them, I'm not going to name names, but a lot of them saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers, saw Fishbone, saw that they were signed and were having some level of success and were like, ska bands are not getting signed. So what are we going to do to get signed? And that for like a year or so seemed like the best route to getting signed. If that was your end goal, then you, your bass player had to move, you know, from playing ska and reggae bass lines to slapping the bass, basically. What and, year are you thinking here? Um, 91, 92, around okay. there, like when Rage Against the Machine sort of like started to get really popular. Then it became like a, like... You know, rats jumping off, off the ska ship, basically. Uh, you know, if 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 you didn't love the music and you were about having success, that seemed like a route to take. So I think Dave was probably right when he wrote that that there were that that was a um, a function of the um, major label sniffing around ska and then sort of moving on. Do you think that has something to do with what I was talking about, where there there seems to be some kind of gap there where things weren't properly handed down? Yes. I think that, that's very interesting, JJ. Yes. I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're onto something there. there that could yeah, be... Neither did I. I feel like, like I'm really honest. I love that. <laughs> that could be an explanation for you're absolutely right. Damn. A uh, quick reminder about the Hornpod hotline. Yeah, don't forget... We want your voice and opinions heard on the show, so pick up a phone and dial 16 horn pod 15 and leave a message. So remember, just keep it short and sweet and uh, keep that heavy breathing to a minimum, and we'd love to have you on the show. That's 16 horn pod 15. It's a real phone number.
look, I love Fishbone, but I don't know that I would call, um, you know, most of their albums ska albums. But when I interviewed members uh-huh. of Fishbone, they love ska. I think you could say that Skank and Pickle is a direct descendant of Fishbone. Oh, absolutely. And so... Fishbone um, and Op Ivy. Say that again, Matt? Fishbone and Op Ivy. Yes. Okay. Yes. Like, like two-thirds Fishbone, one-third Op Ivy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'd also like to analyze things. Yeah, get it right. <laughs> In my book, there's an introduction um, written by Steve Schaefer, who worked for Moon Records. But Steve and I spent a lot of time doing what we're doing tonight. We talked a lot in a very um, theoretical, philosophical way about American ska. And where we netted out was 1985 is really the um, turning point for an American version of ska. And there were three albums released that year that we sort of feel, I think our our, our, um, our theory holds water, but th- there were three albums released and each of those albums, there's a branch that goes off that I think we could we can follow, right? So you have Fishbone released their original, their first EP, um, The Toasters released their first EP, Recriminations, and then The Untouchables get signed to Stiff Records in the UK and they release Wild Child. And I think if you put those three albums up, like on a ska family tree, American ska family tree, you can then start to show the, they're the roots of everything that sort of comes after. It was, you know, maybe it doesn't completely work, but but for, for my book, I felt like it was a good place to start. And I think those three bands and those three albums sort of are the templates for everything that sort of comes after. And we can discuss that and you see what you guys think, but I, I think it works. I don't know. I think this was a good place to to do the ska cannon section. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think that's a segue, uh, if if ever. Uh, the ska cannon is a segment where we three ska aficionados decide which albums will be accepted by all future ska scholars as key to shaping the ongoing definition of ska. Tonight on the ska cannon. Uh, those those three records that, that Mark just mentioned. Um, where should we start? I'm thinking maybe the Untouchables are, are a good place to start. Sure, I'd, I'd love to start with the Untouchables. So, yes, The Untouchables, uh, first record, Wild Child, on Stiff Records from 1985. So, I'm going to be honest. I didn't really know much about this band until earlier this year. So, Mark, you be my therapist. Do you think that I'm just out of touch, or do I hate Los Angeles? (laughs) What? (laughs) You know... I wasn't really a fan of Los Angeles either, Matt, until I started to write this book. <laughs> and um, okay, I've kind of changed my opinion. Look, I I, I don't know that I'm ever going to go live there. Uh, I've enjoyed myself whenever I've I've gone though. Um, sure. I know a lot of people that I really like and respect who live there. I think the Untouchables uh, represent an aspirational version of of what the the what LA could be at its best. Yeah. If you didn't see them live, I can understand how you might not be able to get into them. 
they created a scene and very LA thing, right? Um, really well-dressed people riding on scooters. Right. It's like you said, it's like make-believe in a sense. Yeah. It, it was, in some ways, they were trying to recreate what they'd seen in the movie Quadrophenia in Los right. Angeles. And so it's, it's is it 100% ska? No. It's a mod version, a, a cinematic silver screen version of Quadrophenia <laughs> transplanted to California. And that's weird. But that, okay, so like... This is what I, I say. It's make believe, but I, I don't mean that with any kind of like uh, negative connotation. That's what I like about the LA scene. That's what I like about Jump with Joey. Is that like, and and like Hepcat in a sense. Like here's here's a band that is like completely Californian, but is like kind of doing a a Jamaican impression, and I don't know, just selling this like flavor. And and I don't know. I feel like LA can do that in ways that like other other scenes can't. And I feel like the Untouchables like make room for that in a way they're like by saying like we can be mods here we can do soul here we yes. can fuck with reggae here 100 you know? you're you're all you're accurate 100 i think what was appealing to to me and my friends and others who were teens in the 80s was they looked like an american ska band we were raised by what how the specials and the selector looked which was mod. Right, with pork pie hats and suits and ties. And the untouchables just look so fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they played with an American flag behind them before that meant what it means now. Yeah, <laughs> before it was a hate symbol. Right, when it meant like <laughs> we're an American band. We play two-tone influence music, but we're Americans. That was what that flag um Meant, and I think more importantly, the Untouchables brought all kinds of people together. And so, to me, that's very important for that period of time in, in U.S. history. So, I hear you guys when you when you purely experience them on whether it's vinyl or streaming their songs that you could be like, eh, not doing anything for me. But if you had been 16 or 17 in 1981 or 1982 you might have a different uh, re relationship. They were signed by Stiff Records to replace Madness. I mean, that's pretty fucking amazing. Madness had left Stiff. Dave Robinson, who was the president of Stiff Records, saw the Free Yourself video somewhere in England, I don't know how I got over there, and was smitten. And he flew over to see them, liked them, and offered them a record deal. And, I mean, that to me is, they didn't, can you imagine the pressure of, of having <laughs> to replace madness? So, right. um, well, in 85 or 84, whenever this is happening, is this, is this affinity for mod? Is this nostalgia for, for two-tone? It's an interesting question because at that point in England, ska was dead. Right. 100% dead. Um, everybody, all the bands had broken up except for, for Madness, who were still around. But, but by this point, you know, the English beat had become general public and fine young cannibals. Like, it's a whole new world. 
a new romantic world. Right, exactly. We have we have um, <laughs> all the Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet. That's what people are listening to. And um, I think you're right, JJ. I think there was an attempt here to maybe go back to the good old days, but with an American band who we can market to you in a different way. They're from California. They sort of look like the specials, but they sound like a Northern soul band. Like I, th- I think some of that was thinking was going yeah. on. And um, unfortunately it, they did not replace madness. When I listened to this album for the first time, and again, earlier this year was the first time, uh, I was like, what the hell does this band have to do with Scott? Because like the first three or four songs are just like soul songs, you know? But later, obviously there are Scott and reggae tracks on this album. And it hit me that like, this might be the first time America had its own Scott song. Because like the toasters are still pretty much two-tone. Uh, and I mean, I guess, and, and I'm counting like before they recorded this album, because I know that they predated Fishbone and Fishbone's debut came out the same year. But like this band in general, were kind of like the first band that had a unique American ska sound. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think what's, what's so American about them is that they mix ska with what I think the Brits would consider American music. So like Stax soul right uh rock and roll with ska touches yes yeah and i mean they're also like clearly drawing from like the who and other like uk modern yeah it's the it's the stuff that influenced the two-tone and then now it's on the back in the other direction like it dragged everything with it you know right we're gonna repackage northern soul back to you brits who, who took it from us and created it for yourselves record was also the product of like producers in Europe trying to shape the record into something palatable to European radio listeners. Yes, and um, what I also love about this is that um, Dave Robinson hears the album that they deliver and he's he's not happy. And he has them remix it and then he says to them I'm bringing in Jerry Dammers of the specials because this is this album is missing a hit song. And so that hit song is that he thinks is I Spy for the FBI. But it's I think it's fascinating that that Dave Robinson thought that Jerry Dammers was the man for the mission, you know, to 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 make it, the Untouchables um, successful. It just seems like everyone was blinded by two tone with this band. Like everyone was like wanting to make it all happen again. Yep, pretty much. Interesting, but that's not what they represented in America at all. Not at all. Right in America, they were like the house band at the Roxy. They were one of two ever house bands at the Roxy. The other being the Doors. Fuck. They <laughs> they had a like a. Um, pretty mainstream like middle of the road kind of 
reputation, it seems. Other than like, other than they're, they dress well and they're fun, they're just a band. <laughs> right. But a band that influences right. Greg Lee of Hepcat. Right. So, right. so not only are they doing retro music, and I was saying they, they leave room for all these other retro bands, but like I, I feel like they also kind of create this room for just genre play. And while the Untouchables have it all, like nice and organized, here's a funk song, here's a soul song, here's a reggae song. Like, I think they really do leave a lot of room for Fishbone to just throw it all in the blender, you know? 100%. Oh, yeah. 100%. And yeah, and it's for that reason, I it's it's going to be a big yes for me for Scott Cannon. Yeah, for sure for me too. Wow. Uh, and also, Mark, I don't think we were clear about this, but you also get a vote. Oh, yeah, so for sure. Oh, uh, I vote yes. There we go. Thank you. Three out of feel, three. I, I, this is my dream. Like, I've always wanted to be like a Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame voter. This is like as close yeah. as I'm going to get. I feel like, yeah, your, your votes are kind of already locked in, but, you know. <laughs> all right, so, yes, we were all in agreement that The Untouchables' Wild Child from 1985 is Scott Cannon. So next up, from the same year, uh, let's talk about uh, the Toasters here with their, what is this? This is an EP, I guess, not a single, right? Yes, this is an EP. EP. Recriminations. I'm interested. Were you guys familiar with this record? Had you listened to it before? I know it as the last, what, four tunes on Ska Boom. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I was going to say, I definitely knew all of these songs before, and I didn't really put together until fairly recently that this was like their debut EP. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worthy of Ska Cannon for a couple of reasons. First, it's the first independent released album that got national distribution which is pretty astounding in 1985 so yeah um testament to a lot of the hard work that was put in to um to to building this album and and you know the toasters brand um i'll say on a personal anecdote level i attempted to be a dj at wrsu when i was at rutgers university and uh my uh, demo tape kept getting failed. Um, but <laughs> because it, the third time I was failed, I was there late at night making my demo tape and I happened to spy this record and it had a big property of WRSU sticker on it and I stole it. I'm, I'm willing to admit that now. You're not supposed <laughs> to steal records from the college radio station, but I did and it, because I was so bowled over by it. I had um, recently discovered the ska scene in New York and had happened into CBGB's uh, the night where they had a show called Boston versus New York. So it was the Toasters and Bim Scalabim on the same bill. And uh, it blew my mind. I had never seen anything like it in my life. CBGB's, when it was packed, was um, scary. Scary, but also exhilarating. (laughs) So you're covered in sweat, and you're getting knocked around, and um, the music is loud, and uh, you're sort of locked in to the by the crowd, so you're just sort of moving back and forth. And um, it, it was a you know, hypnotic experience uh, to, to see both those bands at the same time. But the but um, this was the Toasters right after the band that had 
recorded recriminations. So recriminations was sort of, I think somebody in the book called it sort of, maybe it was uh, Sean Cavanaugh of the Unity 2 sort of called it the um, artsy-fartsy version of the toasters. Um, <laughs> so their early incarnation was a little bit more... Yes. College-y? Pink, pinkies up? Yeah. I, I don't know about... Well, you know, it's funny, Matt, uh, Matt you had asked me, were there any... Um, gay ska musicians yeah and, and there was the original keyboard player for the toasters i don't know if you guys knew this is steve hex steve hex um was was gay and he he was um uh he and rob hingley sort of were the co uh creative directors of the toasters back then and he stayed with the band for for some time but yes the original version of the band i actually just posted something about this today um was comprised of members of, of a band called the cooties who were a new wavy art, artsy band um, that Rob Hingley met um, at, a, at a bar called the Park Inn Tavern in East Village, which was a musician's hangout where, where you'd go. If you didn't want to pick somebody up, you were looking to meet musicians. So right. um, that's sort of the the early origin incarnation of the Toasters was, was Rob with this kind of artsy group of people who'd been in another band who familiar with reggae, loved reggae, uh, not as familiar with ska, uh, so he sort of, I think, pushed them in the direction of a more ska-influenced sound. But if you, I don't know if you have the album with you, but if you look at that cover, uh, it's sort of a caricature comic the book. The cartoony. Yeah. Right. You can see it's a very interesting, diverse group of, of folks. It does not look like a traditional ska band at all, because nobody really knew what a traditional ska American ska band looked like at that point. So in a sense, like you mentioned the Unity 2... And this is like just a group of people around Rob Hingley. Like the toasters from the onset were almost always just like the people that were around Bucket, right? I would say that's a fair statement, yes. I mean, it's it's not like they were even trying to like maintain a continuity like from the start, huh? I think I think um, he had a vision and um, he was steadfast in that vision. And... Um, there are, you know, you could you can argue, I don't know what you guys think, there are different versions of the Toasters. I mean, they are oh, so many. distinctly different versions of this band. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and this one is one I particularly like because it seems With that like... F- female singer. Right. Well. It seems like the sum of, of a lot of different influences that different people brought to the, to the band. I was today years old, as they say, when I learned that Joe Jackson <laughs> played melodica on Run, Rudy, Run, which is one of my favorite tunes of all time. Yep, Stanley uh, Turpentine. Do you know much about that? He also produced this EP. So you're saying that Joe Jackson is Stanley Turpentine? Yes. Instead of Stanley Turpentine, he came up with the nickname Stanley Turpentine. Uh-huh. And you had Joe Jackson in your book. Yes, Joe Jackson's in the you- book. Um, I mean, it's it's not a whole lot. No, but and I know <laughs> I know that sounds kind of like eh, side eyed or whatever. I think it's amazing that you got Joe Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Joe Jackson was incredibly important to the early success of the Toasters. He produced two or three of their records. I can't remember exactly, but huh. he used to he used to sit in with them at CBGB's often.
wait, guys, is Look Sharp the first third wave song? (laughs) (laughs) Great question. What do you think? starting to feel it like i'm hearing it in my head well if you listen to some joe jackson songs like again the, you know different yeah different songs different genres but there's definitely a ska and reggae vibe on some of the, if you listen to uh go uh what's it called something crazy beat crazy that's a that's a very ska adjacent yeah reggae oh, adjacent absolutely. album Again, this is a yes for me for the Scott. Oh, yeah, definitely. 100% for me. Boom. But I don't think that this is very uh, available either. And that's one of the things we do try to um, uh, make an account for. Yeah, so we, so even though this came out in 1985, I would say if you want to hear these tunes, uh, there are re-releases of the Ska Boom album by the Toasters all over the place. Yes. That's where you can hear it. Yeah, and if you want to, if you want to drop some some cash, you can probably find it on eBay. Uh, oh, I'm or, sure. Or yeah. Discogs. <laughs> like, if you really are a collector and you, yeah. need, you don't have to, but like, you know, if that's your thing, you can probably find it as well. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So the toasters, recriminations, Moon Records, 1985, going into the Sky Cannon. It's unanimous. Can I just say that? Um, in the past, on a previous episode, we were like, what's the Toasters album? And we were like, Tub 56 is the Toasters album. And now we've added another Toasters release. Interesting, because, like, again, a totally different version of the Toasters. The Cooley Ranks Toasters, right? Right. Different from the Sean and Lionel Toasters. There are so many Toasters, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the Toasters that I saw... Um, antagonizing Macy Gray are absolutely different than like the toasters I would have seen just a couple years later. Right. Well, I don't think they recorded, but for a minute there, a bunch of Westbound kids were were running around as the toasters with with Bucket. Yeah, if you go to the Wikipedia page, I think it's a pretty long, almost who's who of American Scott. It's almost like you do a. Um, you know, I almost feel bad that I've never been in the toasters. Mark, have you ever been in the toasters? I I sat in on a sound check yeah, at Princeton have. University <laughs> for for five minutes, and they were like, "Do you know how to do?" I forget what what cover song it was, and I did not. And Bucket just like looked and said, "Give me the bass back." <laughs> That's harsh. Here. Get out of That's here. Harsh. That's you harsh. Kicked Buck. out of the toasters. <laughs> I was in the toasters for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> So that leaves us with uh, Mark's third recommendation, an album. Uh, this is the one I probably know more than uh, the other two. Well, now, I don't know. I, I know those toasters t- tunes pretty well. Uh, this is the Fishbone self-titled EP from 1985 on Columbia Records. 
Um, yeah, this album is short and effing wild. Effing wild. start with talking about why you didn't include Fishbone in your book. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, some members of Fishbone are in your book, talking about the uh, Untouchables, for instance. But, like, you don't cover the band. It was a really hard decision for me because they mean so much to me, and I think they are incredibly representative of a version of American ska from that era. Um, And their story is just so compelling. But I felt, on one level, it would mean that I had to take one of the other bands out. And there are some bands in my book that you've never heard of before, but I still feel like you should know about them. Like, bands that I um, adored from part of the New York City ska scene. So, you know, when I was talking to my publisher, they were like, you can't do a 500-page book. You just can't. No one's going (laughs) to read a 500-page book. Sorry, man. So that was one... Um, reason why I didn't include them. And the other was, I don't know if you guys have seen the um, amazing documentary. Oh, yeah. Um, and Oh, it's, it's Everyday incredible. Sunshine? Yeah. I, I just felt that there was no competing with that, honestly. Right. I watched it again recently, and it, it confirmed for me that I think I made the right decision not to include them because those documentary filmmakers just put so much love into that and that story, they just captured it like better than I think I, I, I would have been able to. It's already on record. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, I, they, I think that's I great. I love that you had that sense. Yeah, you want to put you want to put other stuff on record. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys should know about Beat Brigade and Second Step uh, and, and Skadanks. Um, yeah. They didn't have success like Fishbone did, but they, they could have, right? And so I, I wanted to make sure that they got some attention. Yeah. So what are some cool things about Fishbone that you maybe learned that you weren't allowed to put in the book because you didn't really dig that deep into that? There's a, there's a crazy story in the book. <laughs> Fishbone, the, the guys in Fishbone were insane when they were teenagers. Like, just fuck wild crazy. And they used to play with, with the Untouchables. And um, <laughs> it took me a minute to, to when, when, when Norwood Fisher was telling me this story, I was like, at first I was completely confused. Um, they would go on what they called grunion runs. Do you guys know what grunion is? No. You know, I, I read that and I did not know what that meant. Okay. Grunion is a small fish. I think it's used as oh. bait generally by uh, by fishermen. Um, so they went and they got a bunch of grunion from a fish store or, or down at the, the pier in Long, Long Beach. And... <laughs> They're opening up for the Untouchables, and they start to throw the fish at the audience. Oh, God. Now, what they didn't expect was the audience started to throw the fish back at them. Well. Well, I mean. So, and one of the fish was a catfish. Somehow a catfish got mixed in, and somebody threw the catfish, and they caught the drummer fish in the face. 
So he's playing and he's got this catfish hook stuck in his face. And there's blood everywhere. Catfish cut fish. Sorry? Catfish cut fish. Catfish cut fish. Yes. That's the headline. That's a headline. The next day. New York Post headline. <laughs> but there's all this fish on the stage and they're stomping all around and it gets starts to get slippery and they're all falling all over the place, right? And then they leave the stage and the untouchables oh. at this point were, were like really into how they looked. Expensive shoes, expensive clothes. And um, it took a long time for the untouchables roadies to clear the fish mess from the stage. But Clyde Grimes shook his finger at them and said, you will never play with us again. They did, but he was so He had these expensive Gucci <laughs> shoes that he was really mad we're going to get covered in fish guts. That was one of my favorite stories from the book. <laughs> I think that's just a great story. <laughs> that's like the the uh, energy of youth versus, you know, the, the right. more mature 30, 30 something untouchables. And you got like the teen uh, fishbone, just, you know. One other funny story I'll share that they, they told me was they thought they invented something new when they started to mix punk rock and reggae. They said, oh, <laughs> yeah. we invented punk rock reggae. And um, Dirty Walt just shook his head at, at, uh, at them and said, you idiots. And he pulled out the Selector and Specials album and said, no, we didn't. This already <laughs> exists. But but so that, you know, they, they were really experimental at that point. Like they were just... Messing around with what and they why heard. wouldn't you? Because like you hear that like madness and the specials came up like almost like instantaneously or like simultaneously. Um, why wouldn't somebody just six years later like come up with the same math? You know, like, exactly. And, yeah. and not only that, but like six black kids from South Central who, in, in many cases, probably weren't familiar with madness when they came out, like in nineteen, you know, the late right, seventies. Right. So. Yeah, of course they would think they came up with something new, right? Just given their, their, um, the way they grew up and where they were from. And they're putting their feelers out there, and they're wanting to put everything together and just mash it all up. And and why not? Why not reggae? Why not ska and funk and all this stuff? Yeah. And if you look at early pictures of them, he explained to me that they they went shopping like as best they could, mostly at uh, used clothing stores. But they wanted to put together their look, which was like, if you look at it, it's like an exact. M- visual mashup of what their music sounds like. It's like a little bit ska, a lot of punk rock, you right. know, safety pins and sunglasses. Boots and dreadlocks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And that's the exact sound you get in songs like Ugly or Party at Ground Zero. Yes. You get all of that. When you were exposed to Fishbone for the first time, was it as a ska band or as a just a band? It was in- like I know they they kind of had some reach, or you might have encountered them beyond the ska scene. Uh, the first time I heard them was in Tower Records in New York City. Okay. So I had no idea who they were, but I heard 
well, it sounded like ska to me, so I ran up to the huh. to the counter, and they used to put the album that they were playing in the store up. Right. And I just said to the guy behind the counter, who is this? And he just yelled back at me, it's Fishbone. So um, I bought it, like on the spot. And that, and then they happened to be playing a couple weeks later, and I saw them with um, Red Hot Chili Peppers in a band called 24-7 Spies. Oh, dude. I haven't heard that name in a long time. And the world will turn to flowing pink papers too. I know we don't really talk a lot about movies, but this this Fishbone documentary, Everyday Sunshine, is definitely something that like we should really talk about sometime. Yeah, because it's so good, and there are so many people. Like, I mean, like uh, Eugene Hoods from Go Go Bordello is in the in the documentary. Yeah, and like, what the hell does he have to do with Fishbone? But like, that's the kind of thing. Um, like, uh, Tim Robbins is in the documentary. Yeah. The actor. Like it's it's a wild uh, film, and like you really, and it's also like really vulnerable. Like you really yeah. kind of get inside. You get the lows, and, and it's not great. like the typical band lows. Right, like they're right. unique lows, you know. Yes, they're very yeah unique lows is yes. a good way to describe it. Yes, um, I've been medium into Fishbone over the years, and I know that they're not like heavily Scott influenced themselves as as their albums went on. Um, and so I was, I had an opportunity to see them a couple years ago and I was, I was like, okay, it could be anything. It could be a funk show. It could be a metal show. This could be all of it. It could be anything. I don't know what to expect. And let me tell you guys, they put on a ska show. Oh, wow. <laughs> like a, a like boss of the wall ska ass show. And it was like, again, like you were saying diverse, like it was all ages, all races. It was like everybody at this show. Yeah. Well, so like I like about five years ago, my band played a show with them, which is insane because we're a sloppy three-piece punk band. <laughs> right. uh, so it was absolutely flattering to share a stage with them, and they're they were still on fire. But more recently than that, like summer of 2019, I saw them open for George Clinton, like, and they had every excuse in the world to play an all-funk set. Two-thirds of their set was ska songs. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking, they are in on ska still. That's so weird to me. <laughs> yes. Well, isn't that interesting that, that despite their um, all their records, which I think we would all agree are not ska records, that at least on two occasions that you both have been to, they played ska shows. Oh, guys, when I was a kid, I was on the beach. And uh, this this lady came by with some friends, and they started talking about Scott. And Fishbone popped up and was like, "Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh." And it was a pretty good show, I have to say. I was just a little kid; I didn't know anything, but like she asked if you know how to Jamaica Scott. Right, that you were there. <laughs> yeah, I heard you told me the story. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I saw that movie when it came out, and the only reason I went to see it was because of them. For real? For real? Yeah, oh, that's awesome. That's how old I am. Not many people can cha cha cha. Not everybody can do the twist. But everybody can do the sky. It's the new dance you can. 
Anyway, so what do you what do you think is the legacy of Fishbone? Like, what do you think their impact has been on Amer on ska music? I think they've probably had the most profound effect on the American ska scene of any band. I agree with you. I think they are the single most influential band. Yeah, I'm, I'm I with mean, you on that. I know, I know that I'm always harping on it, but yeah, Scott, Scott is the, the sound of fusion to me. It is, it is the thing that mixes with everything. <laughs> and, and Fishbone like proved it. They proved it a while ago. And then everyone else just like kept expanding on, on that, on that. Like, like, more, more than that, when what they were doing as fusion became a singular genre for yes. like Orange County. They, they were combining multiple things and like a band like No Doubt took that wholesale as one thing. Right. <laughs> right. And then as we mentioned, Skank and Pickle took another, uh, they took right. something else from Fishbone and they ran with that. Guys, I heard 311's even influenced by them. Absolutely they 100%, are. 100%. Of yes. course they are. Yes. <laughs> oh, so, you know, they got that burden to carry. <laughs> would you agree though that they aside from the three of us talking about them right now that they don't get that recognition or respect no Absolutely. i think i think they are like um perfectly recognized and no, I, mean, not I, I think that they just, not financially but like i feel like the ska scene i don't think so at you all you don't think so i feel like everywhere you turn like who are your influences Fishbones on that list. You don't think that? Okay, if you talk to musicians, sure. But there's a difference between bands okay. that are like popular among musicians and bands that are popular. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll hear that. I don't think that like ska fans, like people are are so much quicker to talk about, and even like the mainstream is quicker to recognize, and you know, like even look back on the days of Real Big Fish or Less Than Jake, when Fishbone should i think like their their snub goes way back to the fucking mid 80s like they deserved to be more popular than they were the entire time okay yeah i, I agree with you matt i i, I kind of feel like if if i had been a record company executive uh back then i might have said maybe these guys are like the band version of Jimi Hendrix, like that, you know, or Sly and the Family Stone, like which, who are clearly influences on on Fishbone. But yeah, but like, I, you got to think, who were the fucking dumbasses who didn't know how to market these guys? You know what I mean? Like, right. I, I just <laughs> don't fucking get it. How are these guys not bigger than the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Honestly, other than straight right. up and institutional I mean, racism, but but honestly, right. music. Right. Other than the thing that did it, yeah. <laughs> but, but I'd like and, to educate. You can't discount the institutional racism because there's, because if if Fishbone were a white band, there's no doubt that they would be, no pun intended, a very big fucking band. Yeah, yeah, it it it, it is. But I I think naively I thought at the time, like, the music industry seemed to me separate from American society and its views on Man. race. So I thought because we had bless had, your big heart, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Like, okay, like, I mean, you could say the same about Lou Reed, though. Like, Lou Reed never, like, you know, he's not a household name. He's he's a name. But, like... You're saying that the, the Velvet Underground didn't... I'm, I think Fishbone is to, to, like, the ska scene and a lot of other scenes is what the Velvet Underground was to, to alternative oh, music. Mm. 
That's I mean, insane. unrecognized uh, by the mainstream, uh, certainly didn't make their money back, you right. know. But no. um, but have a legendary status. When you see a fishbone shirt, you know what the fuck you're looking at, right? You know, right? Like I think my mom even knows the fuck racism shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that shirt was a big deal. Uh, like if you were in the know back in in the when they started to sell those, you had to have it. Like, I think I had that one, too. I remember my mom, before I knew how to do my own laundry, would be like, what's up with the, the swear words on your shirt? <laughs> Which is a great, like, response. Yeah. Very level-headed. <laughs> But yeah, I, I I mean, for so many reasons, they they to me are are the um, the most influential American ska band, and and also probably more than any other band, were able to um, communicate a um, social and political um, point of view in a very very um, upfront way, which I think a lot of American ska bands sort of would have liked to have, but but sort of missed missed the boat on you know a lot of it became party yeah. music you know particularly more recent ska punk where i'm not even sure what what's being sung about um mm-hmm. but again brown being, paper bags probably <laughs> <laughs> but but you know as a socially conscious kid you know raised in the 80s um their message came as close to like an American-ish version of two-tone. That's why I was drawn to them, even if they weren't a ska band. You know, if you if you really look at the lyrics to some of their songs, there's like a real uh, emphasis on um, their like messages from the front lines of Black America in, in a way that, that we didn't, as white kids, we really weren't privy to most of the time. So I don't know. It goes without saying for me that this is a yes. This is a very important EP. 100% for me. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I these were all yeses for me when we decided on them, like as as suggestions. Yeah. I'm like, I, I I can see uh, the outlines of the whole scene in these in these records. I hear exactly what Mark's talking about when he says that this is the the roots of the family tree. Um, and we've done like we've done like twenty something episodes by now. Fishbone was always going to be in the Scott Cannon. Right. Uh, we were just waiting for the episode about ska before the third wave to to put them in <laughs> right so this is like a forgotten conclusion for sure but so yes for me yes <clears throat> uh fishbone uh self-titled ep from columbia records in 1985 all three of these were from 1985 uh is in the canon yes big time mark thank you uh, so much for, for joining us here. I, I know that we only like scratched the surface of like what you're up to, but anybody that wants to dig deeper, like it's right there for you. It's the book, Ska Boom. It is the podcast, Ska Boom. Do you want to give more direct links than that or should they just start Googling Mark Wasserman, Ska Boom? It's funny. You can, it's, I, I, I've never been Googleable. Google, how, what, what would you right. say? How do you say that? I, I, You've never been search engine optimized. Thank you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> if you pipe, if you type my name and book, or if you just write Skaboom book, amazingly, it, it now comes up. So, um, if you can't remember my name or know how to spell it and you just know Skaboom, just write Skaboom book and you should be able to find it. If you're more adventurous, my publisher is DeWolf, 
T-I-W-U-L-F.com. This comes out 4th of July. 4th of July. And what's the best way to buy it? To go straight to the website? Let's go right to the DeWolf.com website. All right. Uh, Oh, and I should add, I got to plug Chuck Wren, who, uh, out of the kindness of his heart, made a, curated a unique mix of, of private label American ska from the 80s. And so the first 500 pre- Orders get this free CD. I, I have them all here, Sweet. and it's my job to put them all together. I because Chuck was kind enough to um, to make them for me, so you'll get that as well. But before this is DIY. Was, you're putting a, you're putting DIY. the package together, huh? Putting the whole pack. Man, together. I'll tell you what. That mixtape, that mix CD that Chuck made, I am looking forward to that so much. I've already got your book in a PDF format, but I'm looking forward to when that book shows up with that CD. Yeah, yeah. the book wants really music. You know, the book wants yes, you to like yes. find the songs you're talking about. Because I guarantee that there's stuff on there that I cannot find elsewhere. Oh, I guarantee. I've heard it a couple times. It is it, Chuck is is a master. He uh, knows so much. <laughs> yeah, the, the man the man is uh, deserves so much credit for yeah. you know single handedly um, keeping American ska and, and vinyl recorded music uh, alive. So he, he deserves our, our respect. But for for me, Mark, honestly, Mark, you are like one of those pillars though. Like your blog back in the days of ska blogging was always yeah, like the one to be. And like, I tell you what, like, uh, uh, this podcast you're putting out there is, is straight up academic, like compared to what everybody else is doing. Like you, you are, you are making, uh, you're putting down the history of Scott. It's so important. To Thank me. you. Like, Thank you yeah. guys. And I, I I'm really yeah, honored, sure. honored to, um, to be on your podcast. As I said earlier, I'm, it, you have my total respect for the level of, um, historical accuracy and, and, the. Uh, you know the the smart, intelligent way that you approach this. So my my uh, kudos to you. It was great. I I could talk to you guys for hours. But uh, truly a meeting of giants yes. tonight. Do you guys <laughs> want to have like a a real quick freestyle session where we just toast? Oh, yes. somebody's yes. joining the chat. It's King Tubby. <laughs> <laughs> well, this concludes another episode of Horn Pod. If you like this kind of thing. Uh, maybe tell your friends. Uh, help us become the world's top ska podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, but more than anything, uh, please just keep coming back. Please keep coming back for another please. episode of Horn Pod. Hey, have have a great time, and we'll see you next time. And drink lots of water, please. <laughs> Stay hydrated. It's hot out. <laughs> 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 I really appreciate it, guys. Yeah, no, thank you. That was a lot of fun. That was the most fun I've had this week.